Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. Let's read the text and ask for the Lord's blessing. Because apart from His blessing and His ability, we can do nothing. Amen? Nothing of spiritual good. This is the word of the Lord. Let all who have ears to hear, hear. Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Father, we, we commit this time to You and we, we come before You asking that You would humble us and that You would be exalted that your word would go forth as light and penetrate the darkness. And Father, bring warmth and, and healing and growth in you. Father, thank you for your spirit who is with us, who indwells us and who leads us into all truth. Father, we love you and we thank you for the body of Christ and for your presence among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we are working our way through Romans chapter 8, um, I would say methodically, Lord willing. There's a, I, th- I hope you can see there's a lot in each of these verses. Uh, they are packed with doctrine, wonderful doctrine that the Lord means for us to know. And so it behooves us to meditate on these things and really take our time with these things to compare Scripture with Scripture and to have a fuller orbed understanding of the Lord's full salvation. We uh, really, if you were to give a category or a theme to this chapter, would call this chapter the super-invincibility chapter. This is the chapter that describes that God's people prevail and win ultimately because God is for them and not against them anymore. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian here this morning, you are in Christ. Your identity is in Him. You've been united to Him. You are no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. And that price was the precious blood of the Lamb, of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has cleansed you from every stain of sin and 
has given you really the righteousness of Christ so that when you stand now before God, He no longer sees the old you. He sees Jesus Christ. This chapter is really meant to give us comfort. If you understand, if we understand that we are conquerors or super conquerors, more than conquerors in Christ, we have a great assurance in Christ. A great comfort that we are in fact saved and and therefore can live in the light of that salvation. Can live a life where we lay down our lives as living sacrifices to Him daily. Where we praise Him and thank Him and do His will and no longer our will. So we've been really asking the question, how do I know that I'm saved? What comforts does the Lord provide in this chapter to know that we are saved? And we've seen several things so far. We've seen that Those who are saved, those who are in Christ, those who are in the Spirit are those who walk in the Spirit. We've seen that those, we are those who mind the things of the Spirit. We think on the things of the Spirit. We set our minds on things above, not on the things of the earth. Because that is our true life and peace. We've seen that really by implication we are are not not subject to the law. We are subject to the law now. We desire to obey the law with total obedience. And we're frankly frustrated that we can't do that. We want to live a life that is pleasing to God. And all of this, Paul has told us, is possible and enabled because of the abiding presence of the Spirit of God in us. And He is in us because we belong to Him. Paul this morning has two more tests that he wants to present us which build assurance in the believer. And that's where we're going to look in verses 10 and 11. And I have to confess, I was planning on preaching verses 10 and 11. And as I went through uh, my notes, I've got many things that I want to share on both verses. And so I think we're just going to focus on verse 10 for today. We'll probably do a little preview of 11. But I I want us to... um, Take our time and not feel like we have to rush through these verses. There are other verses that lend themselves to a little more quickness, if you will, but some of these, they just make you stop and pause. And I think that's where we are. We're kind of in deep, tall cotton (laughs) right now. So two more tests. Really, verse 10 today is this. Here's the test. Those who are in Christ, and, and really the converse, if Christ is in you, that's the truth we want to know. Is Christ in you? If he's in you, then you have a new constitution. That's the big idea for today. You have a new makeup in who you are. You are not the person you used to be. And Paul is going to expound that for us. So let's look at this together in verse 10. Paul says, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, This is a connecting thought, again, as many of these are because we're taking these in bite-sized chunks. Paul had left off in verse 9 saying, Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his, he does not belong to him. And then he begins, verse 10, saying, And if Christ is in you. Now, it's important to note that the, the conjunction that he uses, which my version of the Bible, the New King James, translates as and, can also mean but. It can mean either, and or but, and really it's the context that determines the meaning. 
Paul here is making a contrast with the end of verse 9. He's saying, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his, but if Christ is in you. You see how that's a more natural flow than and if Christ is in you? He's making a contrast. I think the ESV and the Legacy Standard um, translate that correctly. But if Christ is in you. And I want you also to notice that he says, if Christ is in you. Paul had been talking about the Spirit. He's largely been talking about the Spirit in chapter 8. And and in verse 9 in particular, he says that... um, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. He also calls the Spirit the Spirit of God, and he calls the Spirit of God the Spirit of Christ. And here in verse 10, he says, if Christ is in you. It's the same idea he's carrying through. What is Paul doing? He is highlighting the divinity of Jesus Christ. Christ is God in the flesh. Jesus the Christ. If Christ is in you, The Spirit of Christ is in you. The whole Godhead, in fact, is in you. We learned that last week when we looked at John chapter 14. You remember, if anyone loves me, Jesus said, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home, our abode, our dwelling place with him. So God is triune. We see that throughout the Scripture. We've seen that several times in Romans already. But the focus here in verse 10 is on Christ, on Jesus Christ, really because of the significance of what he wants to teach us in this verse. So stay with me on that. He next says, the body is dead because of sin. Now what does that mean? The body is dead. That it might seem like a strange idea. Um, first of all, he's talking about our physical bodies. He has been talking about the flesh, and as you'll recall, he's been contrasting what it means to be in the flesh compared with what it means to be in the spirit. In the flesh refers to our unredeemed humanity, and specifically being under the control of unredeemed humanity, being controlled by the old sinful nature that we inherited from Adam. It's a realm It's the realm of the flesh and of this earth and of everything that's been corrupted by sin from the time of Adam in the garden. That's what it means to be in the flesh. Paul here is making a distinction, though. We are no longer in the flesh, right? We're not controlled by the flesh any longer. We are controlled by the Spirit. However, the flesh is still in us, you could say, even though it doesn't control us. And it gives expression to sin through the channel of our bodies. So that's the relationship. We have an old nature, which is not our new nature. It's not our true nature. Our true nature is that of the Spirit. But it's that old influence of the flesh which still dwells in us. It's in our flesh, as Paul says in Romans 7. And it gives expression to sin through the body. So Paul is saying we are in a physical body and that body is dead because of sin. Why is Paul saying that? Because he wants us to understand something important about our constitution, about our makeup as Christians, who we really are. And before we answer that question, what does it mean that the body is dead because of sin, it's always helpful to state what it does not mean. Um, I was sharing this with a a brother and sister recently, the Puritans were excellent at clarity with regard to the Word of God because they always talked about denials and affirmations. 
it's important to say this is what something does not mean and this is what something does mean because that brings definition to the truth, right? It, it excludes possibility for error. So what does it not mean that the body is dead because of sin? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean, it can't mean that the physical body has no life. He's not saying that Christians have no biological life. That doesn't make any sense. He's also not saying that the physical body doesn't exert any kind of influence to sin anymore. That's important. He's not saying all influence of sin has ceased. You remember back in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, we read this, "...knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, and the word that he uses there for done away with is that it might be deprived of its power. The body of sin, which is the body that we live in, still has sin rooted in it, but it no longer rules and reigns over us. It has been deprived of its power. It still has influence. It still calls out to us to sin and seeks our allegiance and our obedience constantly but it no longer reigns over us. It has been deprived of its power because of our crucifixion with Christ. This is why our understanding of our union with Christ is so important. It has a direct effect on our practical, everyday lives. Your body of sin has been deprived of its power greatly. That's why Paul in Romans 6 verse 12 says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That is, a body that is subject to death, a dying body. Don't let sin reign there anymore. Why does he have to say that? Because sin still influences us. It exerts a, an influence, and it can be a very strong influence. He says, don't let it reign that you should obey it in its lusts. And the idea, as you may re might recall if you were here for that study, was the word for obey is the word for a porter who is listening for the door to knock or to ring. And his job is to go answer the door. And he's saying sin is always going to knock and ring at your door. Don't answer it because you don't have to anymore. So the physical body does exert influence to sin, but we don't have to obey it. Well, what is it that he means then by the body is dead. In fact, what he says in the Greek is the body dead. There's no is there. We insert that for clarity. He means dead in this sense that the body is thoroughly corrupted by sin. The body is one that is decaying. It's dying. Uh, one day it will ultimately die because of sin. We in our culture like to put a happy, nice spin on things when we talk about scary subjects like death, right? Rather than say that we are dying, we say that we're aging, uh, like a, a fine cheese or something like that. We're getting better over time, if you like cheese. Um, the truth of the matter is we're dying. From our birth, we are dying. And I remember John MacArthur making the same comment about um, dying rather than aging. And the young people were laughing in the congregation, and he said, you're dying too. No one gets away from it. We're all dying because of sin. That's this idea of the body is dead because of sin. And, and that sin first entered the world of men through Adam, right? We learn that in our study of Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. If you look at verse 12 with me, Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man 
sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. He's talking about Adam. Sin came into the world of mankind through Adam, and through him it spread to all of us because all sinned. And the understanding is we all sinned in him at that time when he sinned. When he disobeyed God in the garden, all of us being in the loins of Adam, so to speak, sinned with him. We were tainted. The, the pool was tainted from that time. So everyone who has come from him has been born a sinner. That's our nature by birth. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 calls the body a tent. He does that because he's indicating that this body is temporary. It doesn't remain forever. It doesn't abide forever because it's tainted by sin. It's dying. It's corrupted by sin. So I think a helpful way for thinking about this phrase Paul's describing here in Romans 8.10 is the body is as good as dead. It's as good as dead. Um, When the author to the Hebrews describes the faithfulness of Abraham in chapter 11, he says this about him in verse 10. He says, Therefore from one man, referring to Abraham, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. He's talking about Abraham's great age, when he was 100 years old giving birth to Isaac, um, or, or Sarah giving birth to Isaac at 90 years old, and he being 100. They were way past the age of childbearing years. They were both as good as dead And I think that's exactly what Paul has in mind here. If Christ is in you, he says, the body is as good as dead because of sin. Now, here's a question you might be asking yourself as you think through this. If it's true that the body is dead because of sin entering the world originally through Adam in the garden, why is Paul saying, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin? Why does he make that a conditional, that Christ, if Christ is in you, The body is dead. Wouldn't the body be dead even if Christ were not in you? Well, in the Greek, you know, I I always look at the Greek. Um, It's very helpful because sometimes the translators omit certain words. Sometimes they just translate different words from the ones that are meant. Much of the time, the translations that we use are good. I would say very good. But in certain cases, it's important to call out key differences. In the Greek here, Paul word that the translators do not seem to include as part of this verse. The verse actually says in Greek literally, but if Christ in you, indeed, or truly, the body dead because of sin. It's truly dead because of sin. Why is that significant? Because the body is dead because of sin, whether Christ is in you or not. That's just our condition as fallen humanity from Adam. But it's only those who are under the influence of the Holy Spirit who recognize that truth. You see? Remember Paul back in Romans chapter 7, verse 9, he was describing his pre-conversion experience um, and his his self-righteousness, his thinking about himself. He says in Romans 7, 9, I was alive once without the law. I was alive. He felt fine. He was religious, he was fastidious, he was careful to keep his religion. He didn't see that he was in trouble of any kind. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, 
boom. Sin sprang to life, and I died. When the commandment came to his conscience in power, he learned for the first time that he was indeed dead, truly dead, spiritually dead. And the reason that Paul came to learn that is because the Spirit of Christ had come to indwell him and gave him spiritual ears to hear what he could not hear before regarding the law. He heard for the first time that he was breaking the law in his heart, that he was a covetous man, and that that covetousness was constant. You shall not covet. You shall not covet. That was the sense of the text. It was repeated in his hearing again and again. No, to the contrary, the the self-righteous, the so-called moralists and the the religious of this world, they feel very alive and really proud of their own self-righteousness, proud of their accomplishments, proud of their ability to do good works. But for us, beloved, for the regenerate, the body is indeed dead because of sin. And we know it acutely because Christ has convinced us of that. And in fact, he is convincing us of that more and more as we grow in his grace, right? I think it's also important to understand that the body is dead because of sin is a statement of permanence. It's a statement of permanence. It's an unalterable condition. Paul is not saying that it can lead to death because of sin, but that the body is dead because of sin. It's always dead because of sin. That's, I think, exactly what he meant in Romans 7.14 when he said, I am carnal, I am fleshly, sold under sin. And the, the, the sense of that word he uses for sold is an act that happened one time in the past that has continuing actions in the future. I am sold under sin, and that will never change. He says uh, something to the same effect in Romans 7:18. He says, "In me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, not just at the moment, but as a fixed state of being. Nothing good will ever dwell in my flesh." In verse 21 of chapter 7, I find then a law that evil is present with me. That law is a governing principle. It's a rule that doesn't change. His flesh is sold under sin. And that, frankly, is what prompts him to cry out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's bound. He has this body of sin or body of death strapped to him. And he longs to be free of it. And I think we can understand something of that too in Christ. So if Christ is in you, you are keenly aware that the body is as good as dead. And because of sin, Christ in you has convinced you of it. Now he has a contrast. He says this, but the spirit, life because of righteousness. The body dead because of sin. The spirit, life because of righteousness. And This is a phrase that has caused significant debate among evangelicals. The uh, translators themselves are divided over whether spirit should be capitalized or not. Is he referring to the spirit as in the Holy Spirit being alive because of righteousness or lowercase s spirit for the, the spirit of the person? Most of the translators have opted for a capital S. They think that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. I think the New American Standard and the Legacy Standard um, have it in the lowercase s, referring to the spirit of the person. And the reason, the argument for why they believe that Paul is speaking of the Holy Spirit here is they believe that Paul is continuing a pattern that he has started from the beginning of the chapter. 
They say that he has been referencing the Spirit multiple times, really in the first nine verses of the chapter, although the word holy is not used. It's one word. It's the word pnevma, which means spirit, and that word can refer to the Holy Spirit or to the spirit of a man, spirit or soul, the, who you are inwardly, who, the real you. So it's really context that determines what's being talked about, if it's the Holy Spirit or the spirit of the man. And when they, they say the first nine verses are all talking about the Holy Spirit, which I agree with, and then in verse 11, Paul's going to reference the Holy Spirit two more times directly, and by implication, he makes a third reference. So it seems like he's only talking about the Holy Spirit, and the question would be, why is he suddenly sandwiching a different idea for spirit into this broader context of the Holy Spirit? And I understand their argument, but I, I personally do not agree with it, and I'll tell you why. I think the context of verses 9 and 10 gives a different sense here. Paul has been contrasting those who are in the flesh with those who are in the Spirit. Those who are in the flesh walk according to the flesh. Those who are in the Spirit walk according to the Spirit. Those who are in the flesh are spiritually dead. Those who are in the Spirit are spiritually alive. And so the thrust of the argument as I see it is Paul is saying, Church, you are no longer dead, you're alive. Yes, it's true that your body is dead because of sin. That's the bad news. But the good news is that the real you is alive. You are not just your body. You don't get that sense if Paul says the body is dead, but the Holy Spirit is alive because of righteousness. I mean, the Holy Spirit is alive. He's always alive. He's, he is life, and he, He's the source of life and the giver of life. He's God. But He is not you. He dwells in you and has brought you to life, but there's a key distinction between who you are and who the Spirit is. Paul is making this emphasis about the real you, the inner you being alive, and he does that several times in the Scriptures Consider Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He's talking about a spiritual resurrection. You've been brought to life. You are no longer dead. You are alive. Paul in Colossians 2, verse 13 says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him having forgiven you all trespasses. Same idea. You've been brought to life through your union with Christ. That refers to the spirit of the man. You've been brought to life inwardly. So I think what's happening here in verse 10 of Romans 8 is Paul is keying off of the phrase, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. And then in verse 10, he is answering this question, if the Holy Spirit indeed dwells in you, then what is your constitution? What is your makeup now? Who are you because the Spirit dwells in you? Yes, your body is dead because of sin, but your spirit is now life or alive. You've been brought to life because of your union with Christ. Your salvation has begun. Remember, we, we understand salvation in three tenses. We have been saved because we've been justified 
by grace through faith in Christ and in His blood, His work on the cross for us, we've been justified, we've been saved. We are being saved now. This chapter is largely about our sanctification in the present, our holiness, our walking in newness of life. And we will be saved. One day we will be fully glorified because even these bodies of death will be redeemed and they will be glorified, made like the glorious body of Jesus Christ. So, I think we have to keep our focus on where Paul is, which is in these first 16 verses of Romans 8, it's on sanctification largely. You are new in Christ. He's giving an analysis, in other words, of the real you, who you are in Christ. And I think it's helpful to recognize, you know, I I struggled with this personally this week. I, I looked at the arguments on both sides. I really wrestled with this, but this is the conviction that I've come to. Um... I think it's helpful to realize that Paul is not introducing a new idea here. He's expanding on something that he has previewed for us already in chapter 6. And that's often his pattern. He will preview an idea and then he will expand it for us. In Romans chapter 6, look at verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now he makes a direct comparison with us. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves, conclude this to be true about yourself, that you are dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's referring to a spiritual resurrection. You are alive now because Christ is alive. He has defeated death. Death no longer has claim on him. Therefore, death no longer has claim on you. He's brought you to life spiritually. Look at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. There's the body. That you should obey it in its lusts. Because you're spiritually alive, don't let sin reign in your body. You see, there's the constitution of who you are. Body, mortal body, dying body, but at the same time alive, spiritually, in Him. Here's how Paul put it to the Corinthian church. Similar idea, body and spirit. This was our call to worship this morning in 2 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. What a truth. The outward man, that's your mortal body, the the body of death, is perishing. It's getting older. It gets sick, doesn't it? And it dies one day unless the Lord comes first. But inwardly, here's the encouragement, the real you, your inward man, is being renewed daily. Renewed daily. The inward man is actually growing in grace It's becoming stronger. You are becoming stronger. There it is, outward man, inward man, body and spirit. Paul speaks of the same constitution elsewhere to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the real you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Paul actually makes a trifold division here, body, soul, and spirit. Listen to this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, 
And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the spirit of the man. And some people get caught up in trying to divide the soul and the spirit and understand the nuances of the two. I think that's not a necessary exercise. He's talking about the inner man versus the outer man. The soul and the spirit are the inner you, the, the real you. Remember in Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is alive, quick and powerful, and it divides even to the division of what? Soul and spirit? He's not making a division between soul and spirit so much as he is working in the innermost part of who you are and exposing that, bringing that to the light. I think there's something else that we should remember as we think about the arguments here for whether Paul is talking about Holy Spirit or Spirit of the Man in Romans 8.10. Paul was a, a Pharisee, a learned Pharisee, before he was converted. So he would have known his Old Testament. He would have understood the constitution of a new covenant believer that we have in Ezekiel chapter 36. This is something that we revisit often, and I think it's helpful. Listen to Ezekiel 36, verse 24. The Lord speaking, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. That's lowercase s. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will put my spirit, capital S, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. There's a really good analysis of the constitution of a new covenant believer. We have a new spirit that God has given us, a new life. We've been brought to life inwardly. We have a new heart. I think those two are synonymous, heart and spirit. And we also have the Spirit of the living God, capital S, within us, who has regenerated us, who is teaching us, who is leading us and, and empowering us to keep God's law, to do His will. So, for all those reasons, I really think that Paul is describing the inner man in Romans 8.10 when he talks about the Spirit, the Spirit. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit of the man is alive because of righteousness. This is the man who has the seed of God in him. This is the one who has been made partaker of the divine nature. He has a new spirit. Um, one other argument that, that helped me and that we're going to come to in Romans chapter 8 is this isn't the only time that Paul sandwiches spirit, lowercase s, in between the concept of the Holy Spirit. He does the same thing in chapter 8, verse 16. Look at that. He says, the Spirit himself, referring to the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit, lowercase s, that we are the children of God. So it's not a problem to include both lowercase and uppercase understanding in the same verse. You just have to see the context and let that drive the meaning. Okay, so if Christ is in you, that's what's true of you. Your body is dead because of sin, but your spirit is alive. And that really is the definition of a Christian. That's the model of who you are right now in this world. The body is where sin dwells. 
It's where you are, frankly, weak and where the devil aims his attacks because you are weak. It's the part of us that's subject to disease, to aging, and to death. But the new man, the real you, was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians chapter 4. That part of you, the real you, is where Christ dwells. That's the part of you that is holy and untouched by sin. In fact, that's the part of you that cannot sin. It's an amazing thought. So this verse is really meant to be an encouragement to you, saints. You used to be totally dead because of sin. Your body and your soul or your spirit, all of you was dead from Adam, from the fall. You used to be without Christ and alienated or excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were not part of God's holy people. You were strangers from the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world, Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been spiritually resurrected and your new constitution is a body of death, but also a new spirit which is alive and which has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry, the uh, 17th century Puritan, said this regarding this new constitution we have. The life of the saint lies in the soul while the life of the sinner goes no further than the body. The life of the saint lies in the soul, while the life of the sinner goes no further than the body. That's an excellent summary. That's right. Our brother Charles Spurgeon um, said this, and this was from a morning and evening taken from July 10th in the evening. He was commenting on Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And you wouldn't think that there's a natural connection between that and what we're talking about with regard to our Constitution, but there is. Listen to some of these really insightful comments and let it encourage your spirit. The evening, he says, was darkness and the morning was light, and yet the two together are called by the name that is given to the light alone. This is somewhat remarkable, but it has an exact analogy in spiritual experience. In every believer, there is darkness and light, and yet he is not to be named a sinner because there is sin in him, but he is to be named a saint because, listen to this, he possesses some degree of holiness. This will be a most comforting thought to those who are mourning their infirmities and who ask, can I be a child of God while there is so much darkness in me? Yes, for you, like the day, Take not your name from the evening, but from the morning. And you are spoken of in the word of God as if you were even now perfectly holy, and you will be soon. You are called the child of light, though there is darkness in you still. You are named after what is the predominating quality in the sight of God, which will one day be the only principle remaining. And that's holiness. That's holiness. If Christ dwells in you, you are in the light, and he considers you a saint. You are light in the Lord. When God overcomes our first nature, which is darkness, it's all darkness, he considers us children of light. Don't be discouraged, brothers and sisters, when you see so much of your sin, because you know what? The Lord is going to show you more and more of your sin as you grow in grace. And it can discourage you. It can crush you. But remember this. 
Well, first of all, confess it and forsake it. (laughs) Don't excuse it. But remember this, your constitution has changed. You're now light in the Lord and you always will be by his grace. Very, very encouraging. Our brother Spurgeon said it this way, when once you become light in the Lord, there is no evening to follow. Once he's made you light, you're going to stay light. And your eternity will be that of one noonday sun that never diminishes. So some darkness yet because of sin, because of the body of sin, but we are light in the Lord because of the new spirit and the new heart that he's given us by his indwelling spirit. Light is what now dominates the darkness. And then he gives this interesting reason for our spirits being alive. He says this in Romans 8.10, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Because of righteousness. What does he mean there? Well, In what sense is our spirit alive because of or on account of righteousness? And there are some Christian commentators who um, I would say are very good who have gone wrong at this point. In fact, I don't understand how they've gone wrong on this particular point, but they've interpreted this to mean that it's because of our righteousness that we are alive. And if you think about it, I mean, that would be making the basis for our life, our own righteousness. That is totally the opposite of the Christian message. We are not alive because of our righteousness. We are alive of necessity because of the righteousness of another. His name is Jesus Christ. So Paul is talking definitively here about the righteousness of Christ. And this is what links us back to the beginning of verse 10. This is why Paul started with, but if Christ is in you, here's the answer, because your spirit is alive because of Christ's righteousness. It's his righteousness that is in you by virtue of the spirit of God being in you, which has brought you to life. And that righteousness has been applied to us by the spirit of God through faith. Paul is saying that our spirits are now alive because of Christ's righteousness, because he dwells in us. And I want you to notice this connection between life and righteousness. It's one that he's made before, back in chapter 5, so this was a little while ago now, but look back at chapter 5, verse 17. He says, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, he's talking about Adam, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. There's the connection between the righteousness of Christ, which is described as a gift, and life. We reign in life through Christ because of the gift of his righteousness, which we've received. It's a gift. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. There's Adam's side. Even so, through one man's righteousness, capital M for Jesus, the free gift, again, righteousness, came to all resulting in justification of life. There's the life and righteousness connection again. The righteousness of Christ results in a justification of life. And then in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those who are the recipients of God's grace to receive the gift of Jesus' righteousness by faith 
now have life. And that life will continue forever to eternal life. That's the connection between Jesus' righteousness and our life. If you have his righteousness, you have life. And how is it that anyone gets the righteousness of Jesus? It's important that we're clear on these things, brothers and sisters. Our righteousness comes by faith in Christ. You remember that cardinal truth that we were taught by Paul in Romans chapter 4, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, imputed to him as righteousness. He believed God. He had faith in God. He took God at his word and believed his promises. And because of that, he was reckoned, counted, credited as a righteous man. God credited Abraham with his own righteousness. And so it is for all of us. Nothing has changed. We believe God and it's counted to us for righteousness. We believe the Son of God. That God sent the Son of God for us. We believe that those who trust that message will have eternal life. Do you trust in Jesus Christ for your righteousness this morning? Are you trusting in Christ's righteousness alone this morning? Or are you trusting in his righteousness and something else? Perhaps some, some goodness that you still believe that you have. Some ability to commend yourself to the Lord. No. Friends, we and all true Christians must come to a place of recognizing our utter bankruptcy before God. We have nothing of value to offer him because we dwell in bodies that have been corrupted thoroughly by sin. Our minds have been corrupted. Our affections have been corrupted. Our wills have been corrupted. Our compass does not point true north anymore as it did before the fall. Our feelings are liars. And so we must look away from ourselves. We must renounce all confidence in self. We must give up all our self-righteousness and self-goodness and look only to the Lord for His righteousness. Putting all our trust and confidence in Him and in His revealed salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 18, verse 3. Verily, verily, or assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again and become like a little child. You must realize that all your experience, all your learning, all your resources, all your achievements are just worthless before God. And you must start over. That's an offensive message to a proud heart, isn't it? That's why Christianity in its trueness is not popular. Paul said this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. This is his one ambition in life, which was to gain Jesus Christ. And he said this, and to be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul's one desire was to be found in Jesus Christ, in the Spirit, dressed in Christ's righteousness alone. Jesus said it this way to Martha at the tomb of Lazarus in John eleven twenty five. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this this morning? There's the connection between faith, which appropriates righteousness, and life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. We have eternal life. Your body is dead because of sin, but your spirit is alive because of Jesus' righteousness. And your spirit will continue to live the moment you close your eyes in death in this world. You will open your eyes in life in heaven, worshiping God. And that scene in Revelation chapter 7, we talked about this morning in Sunday school. That's the scene. You're going to be praising the Lord with a multitude that no man can number. Worshiping and glorifying God, totally satisfied in Him for the first time ever. You will never die. And then the Lord is going to call the body to life and give us a new body, reuniting our spirits with our bodies. We're going to get to that next time, Lord willing, as we get into verse 11 of chapter 8. So I, I think we're clear on this. We have the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ is what gives us life. We've been brought to life. And really, if you think about it in this, these terms, what is this life? We don't want to be abstract when we talk. Let's be specific. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they might know you and the only, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you want to know if you have life this morning? Do you know God? Do you know God in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in Him for your righteousness alone? If so, you've been brought to life. That's the evidence. The fact that you believe the message shows that you've been brought to life. You know, frankly, the connection between life and the righteousness of Christ is another reason why I think Paul is, must be referring to our spirits and not to the Holy Spirit in Romans 8.10. God, the Spirit, is life and the giver of life at all times. There is no first cause for His being life. He is not alive because of righteousness. But our spirits are now alive because something has happened to us. A change, an immense change has happened with us in our status before God. We were unrighteousness and unrighteous. We stood in filthy clothes before the Lord, condemned. But now we are counted righteous by faith in Christ and we stand before him as one who stands in clean robes, royal robes, the robes of Jesus Christ. So that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son. Yes, we have been brought to life through the righteousness of Christ. And again, the way that we know our spirits are alive is we go back to those tests that we were learning in the, at the beginning of Romans chapter 8. Are we walking in the spirit do you set your mind on the things of the Spirit regularly? Is the one ambition of your life to be found in Him, dressed in His righteousness alone, and to know Him and to know the power of His resurrection, and even to be conformed to His death through the suffering of this body? Are you willing to do that for Him? Is keeping God's law a burden to you, or do you love it and desire to obey it completely? Do you seek to please the Lord in all that you do? Those are the marks of the true Christian. Those are the marks of the one who is spirit-filled. And that's how you know that you are really alive. So, 
Again, the first point for today is this. If Christ is in you, you have a new constitution. You were dead completely, dead in body, dead in spirit. Now you see that your body is indeed dead because of sin. And by His grace, He's brought you to life to recognize the truth of God in Christ. Your spirit is alive. Asaph, in Psalm 73, our corporate reading this morning, he said this, My flesh and my heart fail, but God, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Your outward man is perishing, but your inward man is being renewed day by day. Take heart, saints. Rejoice. This body that will be uh, going to the ground and decomposing in the earth or burned up or whatever it is, is going to be redeemed and made new. The evidence of that is the work that He's doing in you. The proof that you know that that's coming is He's doing a work of, of grace in you now. You believe. You're walking in newness of life. You're setting your minds on the things of God. You love what He loves and you hate what He hates. He's in you and He's manifesting it to you. Take heart. The end of the body is not the end of the story. It's the beginning. And I think it's that understanding of verse 10 where we understand we have a new constitution that really sets us up for a right understanding of verse 11. And frankly, there's been some controversy about verse 11. This was a challenging section for me in particular because of all the controversy. You have faithful expositors who come down on two sides of a truth, and which do you agree with? Well, the final arbiter, thank God, is not a man. Thank God is not a commentary. It's the Spirit of the living God through His own Word, bearing testimony to the truth, comparing Scripture with Scripture. That is where we must go as we study the Word of God, each of us. Compare Scripture with Scripture. Spend much time with Him in prayer. Ask Him to show you the meaning of the truth. And His Word bears testimony to the truth, to its own veracity. He, by His Spirit, is leading you, saints, into all truth. This is the work of the Spirit. It's not to say that we can't be wrong at times. We can. And you know what? God forgive me if I ever misspeak. I, um, it's one of the great fears I have of standing here in this pulpit. But I thank Him that there's no condemnation. Lord, help me to have a right understanding. Help all of us to have a right understanding and to be humble enough to be willing to be um, told that we need to change our position. That's right. So, I want to leave you with some encouragement here. <laughs> the Lord is not leaving us in a condition that we have been brought to life, but sort of left in limbo as we dwell in these bodies of death until they die. That's kind of a grim outlook, isn't it? That would not be encouraging or give assurance of salvation, which is really Paul's focus here. No, the Lord has done something far more for us. He is giving life to our mortal bodies. That's where we're going next in verse 11. These bodies are thoroughly corrupted by sin. They are in the process of dying, but at the same time, He is doing a work to redeem these bodies at, in part, in part, during this life in order to prove to us that He will complete the work at the end. That is what we're going to look at next time in detail and by God's grace work out. Salvation is full-orbed, loved ones. It's full-orbed. And the Lord wants us to meditate on His fullness in order that we might praise Him and thank Him and live lives of gratitude for Him in His service. 
May the Lord do that for all of us today and this week as we go from here. Let's pray.